Hi, I'm Mecky. And I'm Tammy, and we're the hosts of Food with Politics. Yep, where Tam and I talk food, quick and easy recipes we love, and politics, current events, and issues affecting our lives. Hey, Tam. Hey, Mech. Every week so I try to come up with something different. <laughs> I know, I feel like the, but I feel like the last two weeks we had our guests on and we weren't quite as um, chatty. So we're back to just you and I. Yeah, just you and I chatting it up, chatting it up. Chatting it up. And this one, people, is actually, it's about the food desert. We did an episode several weeks ago, maybe a month ago, on food desert part one. So this is part two. And before we get into that, I guess we should talk about our recipes. Uh, Yeah, I think we should do that because we haven't done that in a couple episodes. I know Mm y'all missing it, right? I can hear you saying yeah. But anyway, (laughs) um, (laughs) I wanted to tell you about this breakfast sandwich that Scott has been making for the past couple of days that I shouldn't be eating because I need to lose a couple pounds. But it is so good. It's, It's such an easy breakfast. I guess it's what his mom used to make him. So it's an egg over easy and then two pieces of bread with mayonnaise on it. Well, Miracle Whip. You melt cheese on the egg and then he doesn't eat bacon, but he eats turkey bacon. So we make the turkey bacon and put that on there. It doesn't really sound like much, but I'm telling you, it is so good. So wait, I need some clarification. Okay. Number one, just regular white bread or like a sandwich roll? Regular janky old white bread. bread. Okay. (laughs) And we know it's Miracle Whip. I love how you say Miracle Whip. Okay. And over easy egg, is that like a fried egg with a runny egg or is it like literally, you know, the over easy, the boiled ones? Oh no, the fried one with a little bit of runny egg. egg. Uh Yeah. 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 And then some bacon on there, Mm -hmm. like two strips of bacon and you sandwich that thing up. I had it with orange juice. (laughs) My sister had went to Jack in a Box and I was like, oh, you know, I don't really eat fast food, but maybe I'll try a breakfast sandwich from there or something. This guy was like, I'll make you a better one. So he made that and I was like, oof. How fitting because our story has a lot of fast food references to it today, doesn't it? It does. That's a really good alternative to going to fast food for breakfast. I think I mean, it was, it's gotta be better than fast food, but yeah. Yeah. It's not good for you, but it was, it was still fast made it in 10 minutes. Um, so nice. You know. okay, okay. So that's cool. I love that it relates. I guess speaking of fast food, I was actually thinking of making a version of a Big Mac and I haven't, it's funny because I have not had McDonald's in so long for whatever reason. And I remember how much I love Big Macs and I was at a party once and I saw the person had a jar of, it's called Sir Kensington. It says special sauce. So I was like, is that supposed to be like McDonald's special sauce? And they are like, yeah, <laughs> pretty much. It wasn't, it didn't taste as good. Like at least it didn't taste as what I remember the McDonald's sauce tasting like. Yeah. However, it was decent, right? Oh. So I was actually thinking that I might try to make myself a little homemade Big Mac sandwich with the little pickles and little onions and get this sort of Kensington special sauce and maybe like make two thin beef patties. Maybe mix yeah. them. I don't know. I mean, I'm going to try. We'll see. There's some yeah. spicy buns. Why don't you should try it because, you know, fast food doesn't taste the way it used to back in the day, I think. Like it just, uh, I don't know. I just never doesn't taste the same. Really? Probably yeah. you don't think it tastes the same because your palate's changed. That that could the, be. Reason, yeah, because the reason why they're so successful is they stayed in one formula. So okay. I bet you does. I think I think people make things cheaper nowadays. They don't use the ingredients they used to use back in the day. That's just me personally. Child, fast food always been cheap. <laughs> cheap ingredients. <but laughs> you're right, you're right. <laughs> they put you with none up there with real beef, bro. 
Anyways, uh, yeah, Anyways. So I guess, uh, Tam, you'll put that up there, your little easy breakfast sandwich. I actually want to try that. Oh, yeah. I'll put it up there. I'll put a picture. It might not be the most beautiful picture, but it will represent the sandwich that Scott made. All right. Well, I'll try to do the little Big Mac thing. My kids probably love that, I think. Oh, yeah. You should make that for them. They'll be like, they never get fast food. <laughs> No, I don't know. Yeah, they don't. So, yeah. So we want to start this episode by thanking many of our listeners for asking us to do a part two of the Food Desert episode. Obviously resonated with you. So thank you very much. And we wanted to give a special shout out to a particular listener. If you're listening now, please share with us your name and you can do that via info at foodwithpolitics.com or you can text us at 646-504-3164 because you had a great point in your message about the normalization of fast and processed foods in America. And we'll definitely get into that in this episode. So it took us a while to get to part two of Food Desert because we wanted to get our back to school episodes out to everyone because it was so relevant. And quite frankly, it continues to be right now with half the country's school children returning to live in school learning and the other half or actually more than half resuming remotely. Such unusual times. If you haven't listened to our part one or part two, be sure you do. We get the story straight from the educators that are serving our kids and they have a lot to say. Very, very compelling. Okay, so now back to our regularly scheduled program. So in case you didn't know or haven't listened to the first episode, a food desert is defined by the U.S. Department of Agriculture as an area that has either a poverty rate greater than or equal to 20 percent or a median family income not exceeding 80 percent of the median family income in urban areas or 80 percent of the statewide median family income in non-urban areas. So there are also other certain criteria in order for an area to qualify as a food desert. In urban areas, for example, at least 500 people, or 33% of the population, must live more than one mile from the nearest large grocery store. In rural areas, it's 500 people, or 33% of the population, that must live more than 10 miles from the nearest large grocery store. While we talk primarily about the lack of healthy foods and grocery stores serving predominantly Black and brown neighborhoods and what effects the lack of food choices did to these communities, this time we want to focus on what has been historically available in these neighborhoods. Yeah, Tam. So did you know that fast food restaurants used to symbolize middle-class status? No, I didn't. Yeah. Before 1969, most fast food restaurants were located in middle-class neighborhoods. In 1969, because of all the civil unrest that was happening around the country, the Office of Minority Business Enterprise decided it would be a good idea to promote quote-unquote Black capitalism and provide loans for small businesses. They thought having people from the community-owned businesses could have an effect on calming the civil unrest while building local wealth. The loans they were pushing were primarily for the fast food franchises because those could be easily replicated and they were proven successful. The problem was they would only allow these loans to be granted if they stayed in less desirable, quote, unquote, urban neighborhoods. They redlined where the Black loan recipients could open their franchises, much like they redlined Black folks with housing. They were doing it with businesses. Wow. Most of the owners of these small businesses were actually overqualified, meaning they had PhDs or some of them already were business owners. The corporate offices were oftentimes paternalistic and condescending, which left them feeling as if they were managers instead of owners of their own franchise, which is why business owners in this area may have wanted to open their own businesses instead of owning a franchise. This article refers to Cleo McDowell's in Coming to America. Y'all remember McDowell's, a play on McDonald's? We want you to listen to this. Yeah, I just have to say real quick, Van, that was one of my favorite movies, Coming to America. (laughs) So I'm so glad (laughs) that they referenced that in that article. Okay, go ahead. Listen to this. Mr. McDowell? Yeah. There's some people here to see you. They're not from McDonald's, are they? 
I don't think so. Okay, so the clip that we just played for you was from Coming to America, and I just want to set up the scene for you. So McDowell was actually looking at a manual from McDonald's when one of his employees came in and was telling him that someone was here to see him. So he was startled because he was like, are they from McDonald's? Because he basically stole everything from McDonald's to open his own business. So looking at this, it actually makes sense why he would not want to open up a McDonald's restaurant. You know, Mick, I always wondered that, but now doing this research, I understand why. Isn't that funny? Yeah. It's really funny. That was, that was a pretty big commentary back then without even people like me and you and probably everybody, like young people that are watching it, didn't even know that that's what it was. Because that was hilarious. He literally took everything from McDonald's. Remember what was his Big Mac called again? And he was like, like, they got special sauce. I got my sauce or something. I don't remember. <laughs> it was so funny. But yeah, that makes a lot yeah. of sense. We both got to watch that movie again. I know. Totally. Yeah. Not only has the fast food industry changed its middle class status to being a symbol of unhealthy eating, but food itself has changed. The way we eat has changed more in the last 50 years than it has changed in the previous 10,000 years. Yet the image that is used to sell food is still an agricultural America, a pastoral fantasy that really scarcely exists. Food is just not the same as it was 50 years ago. Not even the fruit you think is just grown on a farm and sent to your local grocery store. It's picked when it's green somewhere around the world and ripened with ethanol gas, there's a deliberate curtain between the food industry and the consumer. Wow. Yeah, Tam, it's pretty crazy. Most of the country's produce currently comes from Mexico and California. So yes, it's green, then it gets artificially ripened. You know that I'm a member of the Park Slope Food Co-op. And while they certainly have... <laughs> we'll chuckle. And while they certainly have food from around the world, including produce, most of the produce and meats are from local farms. I try to be as conscious as I can when I can. And because it's a worker community, quote unquote, owned store, the prices are way, way cheaper for local organic food than they would be at, say, a Whole Foods or Wegmans or whatever. And I say this... I'm sorry, what is Wegmans? Oh, Wegmans. Wegmans is... uh, You know what? Yeah, there's Wegmans here in Brooklyn. That's why I know about it. It's like this cute little high-end sort of store, you know, really nicely laid out, very comfortable to shop in. It's cute. It's really cute, but... I stay shopping at the co-op as much as I can. Okay. <laughs> I say that because I've actually saved my receipt and seen the difference. And it's a huge savings. And I realize that that's a deterrent for a lot of people shopping local and organic. Where we're talking about a huge change in eating when it's out of reach in proximity or financially for so many people. Are you going to go get fresh and local produce then have to prep it and cook it? Or are you heading over to some fast food place and getting yourself a happy meal? When you say it like that, I mean, it's easier to get fast food because not just taking into account the prepping and cooking part, what about having to travel three hours round trip to get food? As we talked about in our previous episode. Yeah, that's yeah, true. That would be a huge deterrent for me. Another issue that I hear a lot of people talk about is obesity in these same neighborhoods that are classified as food deserts. It's usually believed that it's the individual's fault for being obese. But if you only have a liquor store, fast food, and a corner market that sells snack cakes, chips, and soda, then there are no other healthy choices available. Mm. Then on top of that, these same unhealthy foods are addictive. There's high sugar. Don't we know it, girl? Don't we know it? I know. For real. Because, I mean, there's high sugar and sodium, and these trigger a release of dopamine in the brain. So it's like a high. You're getting high Mm. when you Mm. eat these things. Oh, yeah. Tell me. And one would gravitate to the consumption of these foods because of the addictive ingredients. A hundred percent. That's something I think a lot of people struggle with. I go in and out of that, right? You know me very well. You know, I can kill a pint of Ben and Jerry's, (laughs) (laughs) but I try to course correct. You know, I mean, I'm not proud of that, but it has happened. I think Um, all of us have that in us. I could kill a whole box of Krispy Kremes by myself. Hello. I don't believe that, but okay. 
Um, we did a whole box in college. You don't remember when we take That's our like little breaks? That's like six donuts each. And let's not put our business out there, but yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but Sam, I'm, you know, I'm glad that you bring up such a good point about obese folks and basically poor neighborhoods who lack healthy food choices. So again, you're right. We probably did polish off a dozen donuts in, at Krispy Kreme in college. And but I think that it's hard if you're in a place where that's available to you all the time and that's all that's available to you and it's cheap, that's where you're going to go. It was cool. I was reading this article and in the article, they reference a book called Supersizing Urban America, which I definitely want to read. It's a book by historian of public health, Qin Zhao. And in that book, I'm just going to quote this part from Qin Zhao's book. Quote, like ethnic advertising in the alcohol and cigarette industries, fast food companies sold a dream of middle-class affluence to communities of color that were nonetheless still excluded from the housing and education that would make those aspirations a reality, end quote. So Zhao's book shows conclusively that obesity and diet in America have little to do with personal responsibility and everything to do with public policy. And I just want that to sink in again. It literally shows that obesity and diet in America have little to do with personal responsibility and everything to do with public policy. Because I know there's folks out there that love to blame, like, why don't you just stop eating and whatever. So there you you have it. You're right. That told reiterates what I was trying to say when it comes to fast food being a drug. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, this is a great example of policy as well. Let's talk about breakfast and how we've been sold alive with breakfast for a long, long time. Like from health magazines to doctors, our parents and everyone in between, it's been drilled into us that we need to eat breakfast and that is the most important meal of the day. But Tam, you know, I'm decidedly not a breakfast eater. I drink my coffee and I'm good. And like you and probably many, many people listening to us now, like I said before, we were really led to believe that to stay healthy and alert and slim and blah, 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 we had to eat breakfast. But the science doesn't necessarily back those claims. So Tam, why don't you let our listeners in on how two old pasty ass white men help solidify this notion (laughs) into our heads for generations. (laughs) In the late 1800s, one man had something to say about that. Enter Dr. John Harvey Kellogg. Yes, that Kellogg. Kellogg, a deeply Christian man, believed a proper breakfast could prevent masturbation. And what was a proper breakfast? Well, his newly patented cornflakes. And so began his moral crusade. Throughout the 20th century, other cereal companies joined in to spread Kellogg's message. Less for the masturbation part, more for the marketing. We always start our day with a high-protein breakfast, like grape nuts with milk and sugar. In the 1940s, grape nuts officially coined the phrase, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And it stuck. It's the most important meal of the day. Okay, (laughs) so now we know there's no scientific backing about breakfast being the most important meal of the day. But one part that me and Mac really thought was amusing was that he started this notion about needing breakfast around masturbation. Yeah, and it's crazy. It was completely, basically, the religious right and then capitalism. Like this man made money off of this and that was his sole purpose. And then the other cereal companies joined in. And if you look closely, the studies that say that, they're all sponsored by these companies and all sponsored by Quaker or Kellogg to this day. Right. So, and I referenced two old white pasty guys because his brother, he's also a doctor. He also was in on it. So it was the Kellogg brothers right. that actually put this whole thing into circulation and where we are today. So y'all know I'm always good for a medical medium recipe. Almost so, got us in trouble, y'all. Go ahead. I, so, if you don't know the reasons I follow some of the medical medium practices and how the medical medium came to be, Go back and listen to our second episode where we give our opinions of traditional medicine compared to alternative medicine. Also in that episode, you will see that the medical medium tried to come for us, (laughs) y'all. 
but I still have some love for some of his practices. So since we're talking about breakfast, when following the medical medium or healthy eating practices, I find that there, there isn't a specific food for breakfast like cereal. The main focus is to eat foods that give you the proper nutrients you need throughout the day. The only thing that's usually talked about pertaining to the morning break of the fast is drinking water to help your liver get rid of toxins in your body before you start eating solid foods. Yeah, that's so interesting. I've been reading a lot more about just starting your morning by drinking water, either with lemon or plain, right. either room temperature or warm, which is interesting, or even cold. Really quickly, I want to just go back to Tam and her talking about medical medium coming for us. In that regard, I mean, you'll get this when you go back to listen to it, but we also had to edit a big part of that show. It was allegedly, it's not allegedly, it's controversial, but there's a lot of allegations. So we had to take that out. So they did come for us. We edited it, but I, we think it's still a good show. So go back and listen to it. Yes. Back to this one. In terms of the notion of cereal for breakfast with any that one clip she said with milk and sugar, no less. The cereal that's marketed to kids is so laden with sugar. And so I don't know if you've eaten Cocoa Pebbles in a long time. I had that a couple of weeks ago as a quote treat. Woo-wee, it was good. Like with little chocolate milk <laughs> left over. Yeah, that's, that's the best part of it. The oh little chocolate God. milk at it the end. It was so good. I was trying to sneak it and my kids saw and they looked at me like they were about to, like, I don't know. They were just like, mommy. <laughs> it's like, oh, hi. <laughs> so how to let them eat it. But um, it's very interesting that those are the things that are marketed as healthy. Like they have fake nutrients in them or whatever else. I was going to say like most of the world, I don't think people don't eat breakfast like that. But I can speak definitely for in Ethiopia. Whenever we go back and Tammy, you've been there. Mm. We'll sit down to breakfast and it's like real food. It's like the food we'd have for lunch. It's in Jeddah. You know, definitely they'll do eggs with it. That's not considered either a breakfast food or a lunch food or a dinner food. So question, I know that when you have breakfast, you have injera and then sometimes they'll have eggs, but did they incorporate eggs because of the influence of some Ethiopians traveling to the States or whatever, and then having eggs? Or is that just something that comes with that? I don't food? know. That's, that's a great question. I should, I'll ask my mom, because I've only ever known to eat it like that. But to your point, there's, you know, food food is what they usually have. For yeah, food food. Inche. Yeah. It's like inche is barley, a much more healthy nutrient. And it's not sweet. That's the biggest thing is we don't really have a lot of sweet for breakfast. They're right. actually really hearty foods. But with the eggs, like in Fudfa, like or in the stew that you use for that, there's a whole egg. But I know like you've seen in Ethiopia, when they serve it, it's with the really fluffy scrambled egg. So I'll ask my mom. So Oh, that's a good point too, because there's another dish that, like you said, has a whole egg. Yeah, so maybe that's just, maybe that dish just comes with scrambled eggs and it happens to be served in the morning, but it's not yeah. necessarily a breakfast food. Yeah, you, no, 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 definitely not. Right. I mean, eggs are eaten with dinner, with lunch, you know, as a whole egg in the stew. That's a big part of it. If you just don't eat sweets for, unless it's a very Western type of breakfast, yeah. And maybe some parts of Ethiopia where they heavily influenced, I forgot what it's called, but they do have this thing where you spread honey on it. And in Harar, in the area in Ethiopia, I know they do. Like it's like almost like a flatbread and you put honey on it. So I guess almost like a pancake, but that's not a very traditional dish that you eat for breakfast all the time. And to your point, when I did live in New York and I had an Asian roommate, she never ate quote unquote breakfast. She had coffee, as you mm-hmm. said, coffee. And then whatever she had left over for dinner, she would eat for breakfast. Yeah. She ate very healthy and she ate a lot to be as tiny as she was. But she well, never... Wait, I know I know who you're talking about. And I remember her telling me once it was so funny because I had a I think I came over to your place and I had a muffin or something. She's like, Oh, mm. you're having a cupcake for breakfast. And I was like, it's not a cupcake, it's a muffin. She's like, same thing. <laughs> so funny. I was like, 
Exactly. That's oh, American. The person did not tell me, but it's, but it's true. What, like, what's the difference? It's the same it's, amount of sugar. It's very true. Cause yeah. another thing is when I used to go out to eat with my mom, we would get like pancakes or something like that. And she would never get pancakes. And I'm like, why don't you don't like pancakes or waffles? She was like, I don't want dessert for breakfast. So she That's would get something so more savory. Isn't that something? Yeah. Yeah. So, well, yeah, we've got a lot of unlearning to do with our, even for me, like I catch myself with the kids being like, you have to eat, like, you know, wake up your brain, da, da, da in the morning. I definitely think they have to eat something. Um, yeah, I would be lying if I said that they don't eat cereal. Skindu definitely eats cereal. He eats Cheerios almost every morning. So I'm over here talking about we don't eat that. <laughs> Even in my household, we're over here eating. On the weekends, it's much more like savory foods that we have for breakfast, honestly. We eat a lot later or whatever. But yeah, it's, it's going to be a hard change to try to change that, I think, because yeah. well, it's emblazoned in our brains. There's so many things we need to change in that society. And I think that's minimal, um, especially when it comes to dietary issues and not having access to the foods that they need in underserved neighborhoods. I think that's the bigger issue that we are trying to convey here. Yeah. And we always try to end our show with lemons for lemonades. But lately, with all these issues that still have not had any resolution, it's hard to think of how we can make lemonade out of these lemons. So if any of you know of solutions that have been put in place for these underserved neighborhoods, please write us at info at foodwithpolitics.com or send us a text at 646-504-3164. We look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoy talking. Do us a favor. And if you like what you heard, spread the word. Woo! And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at foodwithpolitics and subscribe to our podcast. New episodes drop every Wednesday. Talk to you then. Mm-hmm.